For August 16th, 2010, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 111, Finnegan's One Up. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From the left coast, the bleeding edge of America, I'm your host, Matthew Rather, here with an unreasonably large panel to overthink an unreasonably awesome movie, Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. We'll get to that in a second, but uh, to begin, we will ask the panel the question of the week. This week, what is your ironic comic book band name? If you had no, a... No, video game. Oh, Video game. Get it right. Jeez. Your ironic video game band name? Wait, I missed it. (laughs) Uh, What is your ironic video game band name? Apparently, I don't know what I'm talking about and should should cede control of the podcast to someone else because I'm, you know... Uh, I'm a bunch of Costco beers in at this point. <laughs> <laughs> they they brew a fine beer at Costco, a fine generic generic Kirkland, beer. Kirkland makes everything: beer, <laughs> toilet paper. It's I mean, re- that's- <laughs> yeah. I try to live a Costco life. Uh, it's my Barbie dream house. It's all it's all uh, you know covered with with Costco products. Natalie Baseman joins us from Boston, Massachusetts. Natalie, what is your ironic band name? All right, it's a good one, so everybody get ready. Uh, my band's name is going to be Chip Witch with a uh, question mark at the end. <laughs> like, uh, like, would you like a Chip Witch? Like, Chip Witch? Uh, it's more of a Chip Witch, but it will just be pronounced Chip Witch. I see. Then, so you don't, awesome. it, <laughs> you don't pronounce the... The question mark. It's a silent question mark. <laughs> it's a silent question mark. It's the in IPA the symbol for a glottal stop looks like a question mark. So you can imagine it's just a silent closing of the throat at the end of uh, Chip Witch. Uh, Peter Fenzel by cell phone. Pete, uh, how is uh, we had our Pete Aid fundraiser a couple uh, uh, a couple weeks ago? Uh, how's the progress towards uh, repairing the flood damage? Uh, it's, it's doing well. I had a wonderful birthday party here last night, so thanks everybody who wished me happy birthday or came by. Um, I'm looking right now at my computer, which has some parts that have been taken out of it, and we're getting a new motherboard in that baby, so that's going to be good. Hopefully we'll be up and running in the next couple weeks. Uh, yeah, I think that, uh, that you know, we're starting to take back the night over here. So, uh, you know, starting to feel safe in our homes from the plague of water rushing in through the window. Which, uh, you know, now, now, only, now it can start flowing with root beer again, which is the way it was meant to be. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You've rebuilt. You're starting to rebuild your. Um, you're starting to rebuild your pyramid of uh, of root beer cans. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Pete, if you had an ironic band, video game band, what would it be named? Oh well, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit progressive, you know, and I kind of like the dance music, so I definitely go with Techno Bowl. I think. <laughs> and I, I, I start every show. I start every show in the in the front of the theater, and I have my little like techno mixing system in the back. And so I would I would hike to myself, and then I'd run all the way all the way back before I finally push the button to launch the techno show forward. Um, which should be techno Super Bowl? Would people connect with that better? I don't know. I had another one too, but I don't want to step on anybody else's business. So if it comes around and nobody else says it, I'll come back and uh, and throw in my other one. Excellent. I, I've been a huge fan of the tech mobile for a long time. 
I feel like Daft Punk but with a football helmet. It'll be great. <laughs> Mark Lee from uh, from beautiful Brooklyn. So when I first heard this question, I interpreted it as uh, a band name that is derived from a video game. That is ironic. So I was going to go with uh, Nico Bellic and the Whalers. Uh, Nico Bellic being the the protagonist from Grand Theft Auto Four. And whalers being a reference both to Bob Marley and the whalers, as well as beating up people under the bat, as in the one I whale someone with the bat. Um, but now that I realize that it's less that and more just an ironic uh, band name that would be in a video game, I'm going to go with my. No, it's, it's, it's named after a video game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What are you talking about? Oh, go for it. Never mind. Oh, but if, if we're just kind of doing a funny band names in general that we wanted to do for a long time and have kind of held in our, the back of our minds for opportunities such as this, I'm going to go with look out, mild racial slur coming up. Uh, Charlie and the Gooks. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's not from a video game at all. I've never played a video game with that name. They, the MSRB would never allow it. Wait, what's Chip Wish from then? What video game is that from? Crickets. <laughs> yeah, clearly, clearly there's right. been a, See? <laughs> clearly I wanted to know. I don't know what video game Chip Wish is from. Maybe Natalie can explain it to us. If only Natalie were here to talk about it. But anyways. That's, that's probably true. Well, Techno Bowl is from Techmo Bowl, which I hope everybody's played. Bo Jackson is invincible. He's running back. It's yes, a great I, game. I, I picked up on it the first time. Don't worry. I got it. Yeah, okay, the, thank you. All right. We got to keep this ship steering forward, people. Forward. <laughs> Apparently, the, yeah, there's I'm some... I'm 30. Con- I don't have a lot of time left. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Happy birthday, Pete. All right. So we're, we're uh, pleased to have next in alphabetical order on the podcast a guest. It's been too long since we've had her on the show. And she is an expert on the Scott Pilgrim universe. Uh, not only the film, but also the books. Uh, Amanda Marcotte, welcome back to Overthinking It. Hey, thanks for having me. Ironic band name, if you please. <laughs> um, I think I'd go with Cart with a K-88, a reference to the Ike Turner song Rocket 88 and the game Mario Kart. <laughs> <Awesome. laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, I see uh, <laughs> you are all besting me. It's, it's terrible being last in the alphabet because I, 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 the, my opinion of my own choice goes down with each of your wonderful, clever answers. Uh, uh, Josh McNeil from uh, Philly. Uh, I'm going to go with HRM2 and the Party of White Mages. Uh, it was just oh. the least badass thing I could think of. <laughs> that's, that's pretty not badass. I <sighs> we, are, we are burning through these. John Parrish, you're next. Okay, because my band... Or two things. First off, I'm actually friends with a couple people who are in an ironically video game, or video game named band. Uh, my friends are in the band Minus World, named after the weird glitch uh, negative world that you can get into in the original Super Mario Brothers. But... My, that's a real band, but my ironic video game name band would be sort of throwing it back to old school video games and with a sort of emo hipster sound. So I would be fronting the Arcade Fire Flowers. <laughs> nice, <laughs> nice. <laughs> okay. Uh, I actually wasn't, it was not a, it was sort of, was there ever a video game made of, of the film Top Gun? Oh, yes. Yes. Oh, yes. oh yeah. It, landing on the aircraft carrier was nigh impossible. It was completely it was quite impossible. De- quite depressing to try to land on that aircraft carrier. At the Great. My, um, so my, my ironic band that actually existed, that, that Ryan Chile, another overthinking it writer, and I were briefly involved in, um, which was a, uh, it was a sort of early hipster emo band, uh, kind of meant to sound like something corporate. Uh, you know, or sort of early dashboard confessional, um, we, uh, was called Wingman. After 
after uh, you know after the line that Val Kilmer says to Tom Cruise, uh, "You can be my wingman anytime," and uh, it, the logo was going to be the Top Gun logo, but with Wingman instead of Top Gun uh, on the two wings of the uh, on the on the two wings of the the um, the thing, and it, it so was. Does that make you Iceman? Because Sheely was clearly Tom Cruise. Yeah. <laughs> or Sheely was Goose, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, all right. Scott Pilgrim versus. Oh, can the- I do one more? Can I do one more? <laughs> Please. I got a better one. Okay. I think that I would actually not just be a techno band, I'd be kind of a fusion band. And I call myself Bionic Cabando. Uh, 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 robot arm? Nothing? Fight Hitler? Uh, Never mind. <laughs> there's what about uh, what about a band that does like a lot of like experimental sort of music in seven eight and like asymmetrical time signatures and it's called Countra. Oh, oh. <laughs> no, uh, no, that's a terrible idea. Um, all right, Scott Pilgrim versus the World. Blanket spoiler alert for anything in the books and in the movies. Uh, you've been forewarned. Stop listening now if you if you actually care about things like that. Um, well, where where should we start? You know, well, well, we start everything with the hegemonic discourse. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right. Can we t- talk about the Canada, the, the Canada versus USA power politics at play here? The, hinter, the northern hinterland, the, uh, feeling, th- feeling threatened by the invader from from the uh, from the hegemonic USA, New York, New York. Except that, the, except that the, the dynamics of this are kind of interesting because she's not she's not an invader so much as a refugee, right? Well, yes, this is true. From a you know what I mean, from a kind of over. Uh, I don't know, from a kind of oversaturated experience in, uh, in New York City to, to a kinder, gentler life in, uh, in Toronto, right? Well, what does she do? She takes a job of a hardworking Toronto person. She comes in there and she can work harder and faster because she can travel through subspace and Canadians can't. It's unfair competition. They really need to close those borders. <laughs> and then they and create stormtroopers and secret police who arrest anybody with blue or green hair. <laughs> uh, under suspicion, definitely, definitely. We also have the character of, of Envy Adams, who apparently used to date Scott Pilgrim and ergo lived in Toronto, but then traveled around the world and became world famous, although uh, the only place we've ever heard of her going to is New York, and then returns to Toronto and apparently has some sort of realization after her boyfriend gets her head ex- or gets his head exploded in. So apparently there are only two places in this world, Toronto and New York, and you're either yeah. you're either from one or the other, and if you're from New York, you need to find yourself in Toronto. See, this, this is something that struck me about the that's much more in the books than in the movies, because one of the things, of course, that, that hits people right away about this property is there's a, you know, I guess I don't want to say magic realism too casually, but there's this integration of, uh, of symbols and phantasmagoria and, like, fragments of aesthetics that come in from a whole bunch of different areas, mostly video games uh, that, that sort of exist in this world and people don't pay any attention to it in terms of it being weird. Like, it's totally normal that these things happen. But it's, still, it's weird that, that, like, that you're in Canada, right? Like, like it's like you shoot fireballs at each other and do crazy uppercuts, but like, every once in a while the comic book stops and is like, this is an actual place in Canada, and like, this is where you can go, and these are the hours that it's open, and like, this is like, what our shops are like, and like, this is what our tourist attractions are like. The um, movie doesn't go into that as much, but it's kind of interesting that there is a sense of self per- self perception of the other, right? Like the books are a little bit self consciously uh, cognizant of the fact that they take place in a place other than, I guess, the United States. Um, you know, they're sort of trying to come up from behind this sense of insecurity. Um, 
which mirrors the insecurity that the characters are feeling in the books, which mirrors the sort of more universalizable insecurity of people dealing with each other's pasts and, and romance and all that other stuff. Well, the action is so always... It all sort of comes together. Sorry, go ahead, Amanda. Well, and it's also, I think, uh, sadly characteristically true of Canada. <laughs> <laughs> so this isn't so much like a, a message as it is just sort of automatic. It's going to be in there anyway. Yeah, they they unfortunately have, I think, to a certain degree, absorbed the idea that they're not America or they're not the <laughs> <Yeah>. United States. <laughs> right, right, right. And that, well, right. I do yeah. love how everybody in the movie and the books like dresses like they're from Toronto, which I feel like is a nice touch, and it also works for the character design because. Scott Pilgrim in the books, the character design is pretty uh, uniform. Like, most of the characters have the same sorts of faces, same sorts of shapes. Like, there's a fair amount of androgyny in the way the characters are drawn. They're either, like, childlike or, or like, just sort of flat. Um, you know, oh, and it's, it's, so it's, it's good that they, uh, they have that different, oh, they wear a fleece. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they got a hoodie on. There's they're a sense, I mean, there's a sense. Which one is which. It's sort of right that they're childlike, isn't it? Because it's a movie about every character in the movie is is sort of an adolescent in the sense, even though even the ones who are in their twenties, um, right? They're they're sort of not concerned with with adult life in the sense of uh, I don't know, you know, becoming established, forming more permanent relationships, kind of a, a vocation, uh, you know, that is that is stable. Everyone is is everyone is kind of in in uh, in find yourself mode, right? Right, and even are you Scott familiar with adult process. life, Matt? I don't. When in adult life do we get to settle down and like establish ourselves? Uh, it takes it takes a while, I think. Not in this. Six, not six, a, six months into thirty, Pete. So watch out. What? Yeah, not in <laughs> no, this. Yeah, no, not in not in this economy. Speaking yeah. of adults and lack thereof, it's worth pointing out just very quickly that although Scott lives across the street from where he grew up, we never see his parents. In fact, we never see anybody's parents. These are all young people we see here. We see no. Uh, I mean, I'm just trying to think. Are there is there even anybody who's ostensibly over the age of 30 even in the movie at all? Yeah, it's a, it's a very narrow band of um, you know, it's a very narrow band in the film anyway, which is one I'm familiar with, I guess, of of uh, ages, right? From sort of very late high school through kind of early to mid 20s, right? Yeah, I think the oldest, the oldest, or at least the most worldly person we meet in the movie is Jason Schwartzman's character, Gideon Graves, who's right. apparently the head of an indie record label and has achieved this international clout in determining what is hip and cultural at the age of, I guess, twenty-eight. Oldest people in the movie are the vegan police who come in and, and take away the vegan uh. superpower. <laughs> yes, you're correct. You're correct. About Which that. is, did you notice that that the head of the vegan police was the guy from Hung? <laughs> Thomas, Thomas Jane, yeah, uh-huh. yeah. Hmm. and from the it's interesting. Yeah. So the, the the one character over thirty is the villain, or the you know the oldest character in the show is the is the primary antagonist, and he's also he's associated with selling out and with uh, you know what I mean with kind of the the value of commercialism over uh, artistic integrity, and he's the one who broke the unbreakable girl's heart. So he was the one who had the control over Ramona flowers. Well, it's, is this, is this thing developed more that she has like a, a microchip in her head or something like that? Like, is that developed more in the books? Oh yes. Yeah. In fact, it, it's an elaborate symbol, especially in the last book for how, uh, her emotional attachment to him. She's kind of masochistic we discover and has this inter- whole internal s- internal space inside her head where Gideon kind of controls her, at least part of her brain. And and it, it's actually very, very, very dark in the book. Like, she's, like, tied 
to a throne that he sits on, and we only see that hinted at in the movie. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think the very point... Simple, yeah. Yeah. I think the point came across. I definitely got that relationship in there. Uh, I think yeah, his... Yeah, his for for as, as for as old as Gideon is supposed to be, his means of controlling her are very much the means that a teenager or an adolescent would fantasize about. Like, yeah, I'm gonna take control of this woman I've always wanted by putting a chip in her head and by, you know, by picking her up and playing under my thumb by the Rolling Stones in my hot limousine. I've got the he goes all- and I sit, I sit on the throne with this cane. I'm a badass. It's it's very much an adolescent's vision of dominance as opposed to you know how grown-ups get in control of their lives clearly you never read dick cheney's autobiography (laughs) (laughs) and in in the in the books we also find that gideon has a pattern of doing this because he after envy's vegan boyfriend disappears she gets with gideon and he does it to her too ew yeah i mean in in the movie i feel like the the movie kind of drops off a little bit because the parts that they focus the most on are the ones that happen fairly early on in the books. Like, they give way more time to, like, the first volume of the series, the six-volume series, right? Six volumes of, of manga, basically, of, like, you know, Canadian manga, read left to right. Um, and uh, and they, they give much more time to, like, the first couple volumes than they do to the rest of the whole series put together. Um, it's just because they have to explain what the story is, and they have to give the backstory, and they're not as concerned with a lot of the other details and reversals that happen. So Gideon is kind of under-realized, I think, as a villain in the in the movie, like pretty severely. Um, I, one of the missions that I missed the most was, was Roxy, the lesbian lover. Um, her relationship is very different, uh, but I just missed her death scene from the books, which is like totally awesome, because it's a shot-for-shot reproduction of the intro cinematic from Ninja Gaiden, uh, which is like, I was like wowed by that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, not, you have to geek out a little bit to recognize it, but it's nice to know that it's iconic enough for people to see it. Like when Jack Wio kills Ryo Hayabusa's father. So, um, Although there are still, still plenty of iconic video game representations for people to geek out over in the movie as well. I mean, the... Yeah, like the Soul Calibur fight, yeah. Yeah, the, the, the Ninja, Ninja Gaiden entrance is, is sort of lamped a little in the Lucas Lee-Scott Pilgrim fight as they charge at each other. We get those yeah, that yeah. split screen, the motion lines, etc. The, yeah, the cl- the close-ups on the eyes, right? Or on the yes. faces, yeah. My my favorite one of all of those was the 8-bit Universal theme song opening. I thought just... Uh, yeah. <laughs> it really it set the tone perfectly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, see, seeing that really did set it up. Can we talk about that for a moment there? There's this... Uh, I don't know if any of, you, uh, any of you are familiar with this recent uh, musical movement called uh, Chiptune, I think is what it's called. Anybody else? Vaguely, but elaborate anyway. Chiptune. Sorry, go ahead, Amanda. Is that where they use eight bit instrument, like eight bit computer or video games for instruments? Exactly right. And so I I heard most of this from the End Gadget podcast, which probably a lot of uh, a significant number of our listeners also listen to. um, Where originally it started out, it seems like as if they were, you know, people were just taking uh, those that pile of instruments, that crude pile of instruments, and then covering pop songs. Um, be it anything from Beatles to Taylor Swift to uh, with with those instruments, and then apparently now it's branched out into more of like let's just make music like this using this palette because it's awesome because it sounds yeah. cool. All right, I forget what they were called, but I definitely saw a show back in like 2004 where this this cool piped both the audio and video for their show to like a modified Atari 2600. So it was like just using the sound system in the Atari, and then they had a video show that was just created by the the video the video chips i'll just say 
the, the microchips that make that thing happen. I don't know exactly what they call it. But, uh, but it was pretty cool. I mean, it's, a, it's an aesthetic we're all familiar with. It's something that, that, you know, at this point, it's part of our, our vocabulary of symbol and, and things that mean things. Right, but I feel like, you know, in 1989, no one would have really kind of intentionally gone out and tried to replicate that sound. Um, you know, everything was, you know, uh, if, you think, if you just think about the evolution of music and video games, and originally she had Belinky here because he's uh, something of an expert on this. Um, how, you know, think about the music from Nintendo to Super Nintendo, Super Nintendo bringing in, you know, more sort of, uh, you know, uh, sophisticated MIDI sounds. And then um, and then future games just basically, you know, bringing in orchestral quality music in. And, you know, as that constant evolution comes along, you know, we've, we've you know, reached sort of the level of realism that you would expect from it. And then all of a sudden, boom, let's take it back all the beginning. Let's go back. Well, you got to perfect it before you can deconstruct it, right? That's true of most art forms. The uh, I want to point out, I just want to call out one bit of 8-bit music, which is uh, a cover, uh, you know, note-for-note cover of Miles Davis' record, Kind of Blue, that is called Kind of Bloop. Yes, that is uh, that's amazing. It's amazing. oh, it's, it's a fantastic record, and it's in its own right. And the one thing they do is there are like quotes from uh, the super uh, uh, from the NES, not super, the non super NES uh, Super Mario's game, uh, Mario Brothers game in in uh, some of the um, in you know some of the less dense moments of like Freddy Freeloader or something like that. Kind of bloop. I think if you Google for that. Um, You'll uh, you'll find it, but I, I want to bring up something with this. There were sitting in front of me and my girlfriend at the theater were four obnoxious teenagers who kept like calling out, um, uh, uh, calling out like you know things that uh, things at the screen and kept getting shushed by the the grownups around them. Um, and uh, I, I was looking at them during the thing, and they laughed during the the eight bit thing. Not of not a laugh of recognition, but a laugh of oh, God, this is stupid. Which was their general attitude towards the world. And I I uh, I realized they're too young to get this, to get what this is a reference to, right? And uh, this sort of this sort of um, uh, this sort of dates the movie for people who are who are our, our age, which is to say, you know, thirty plus or minus a little bit, right? And and um, uh, for for you know for our generation, for the generation that is now in its thirties, um, this is a this is a real cultural touchstone. Uh, and there's a sense in in which we were talking before the show about this movie being kind of micro targeted to us as an audience, uh, and we think it's awesome, but apparently it has not done great guns at the box office, uh, so it doesn't have you know mass appeal. Um, apparently not stacked up against like eight action stars together or anything like that, or Julia Roberts. Roberts, for that matter. Right, exactly. Yeah, that, that was great counter-programming, whoever decided to release Eat, Pray, Love this weekend. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the target audience for this movie, I think, is people young enough to get and appreciate all the video game references, like the, the callbacks to the, the Zelda theme and the, the Mario iconography, but old enough to recognize that women aren't, you know, objects, women aren't the object of a quest. That you know you, you you haven't you haven't completed the quest once you've got the girl and seized her in your hands and beaten the villain to a pulp. Where the object of a quest is actually, as in the case of the movie, I don't know about the comics, I've never read them, but in the case of the movie, self actualization, realizing that you know you are a person with you know your own needs and drives, and sometimes your selfishness screws other people over. And being an adult is owning up to that. The um, well, and yeah, what 
before, who was it that was pointing out before the podcast also that the aesthetic of Toronto in the movie really had a, a mid nineties feel to it, you know, as if, as if people our age, when we were that age, just sort of were lifted up and dropped into this movie. Exactly. Exactly. It was like, I felt like I was back in, I expect, I half expected some like kind of early hip hop, like, uh, uh, you know, low pants people walking through, though I understand that's making, <laughs> you know, that's, in that's, Toronto? <laughs> well, no, I guess, I guess, I guess it not. They're nice. Their tuchus would be cold. <laughs> uh, a nice touch, I think, that translated very well was the casting of Kieran Culkin. Like, how many people who are younger than 20 are going to know him as the brother of Macaulay Culkin? And I got a kick out of that, at least. <laughs> oh, really? He played what, Wallace? Or? Yes, yeah, he, was he Wallace, played Wallace. Wallace. He was Wallace, okay. Oh, really? I, mean, I, yeah, I, don't think, yeah. I only knew him as the, star of, as the star of Igby Goes Down. Alongside uh, <laughs> Amanda Peet and Claire Danes. Yeah, I mean, it, what about it his is star turning signs? <laughs> it is an interesting call out, but I, I mean, of course, Kieran's a, a talented actor in his own right, and I think did remarkable things with that role. A role that could have been very easily stereotyped or just a bunch of corny jokes, you know, became, you know, a, a, a sort of really interesting voice in the movie. Yeah, he had the best laugh lines in the whole film. But oh, there's absolutely. there's something I mean there's something interesting with the with the video game aesthetic. There there is kind of a there is kind of a like a mid nineties uh aesthetic that I associate with kind of the first bloom of, of Seattle based grunge rock, right? Yeah. It, you know? Like uh Hoodies, colored hair, baggy clothes. Yeah, colored hair especially in some of the haircuts, like the the kind of um, uh, Ramona's like pixie sort of uh, haircut that gets that gets dyed a lot. Um, yeah, the, the real thing that steals the '90s uh, feel for me was the use of AOL. Not just the AOL, but also the computer that he's using to access AOL is impossibly archaic, right? A huge tube monitor, <laughs> that the yeah. beige tower box that we used to see, and yeah. the video game. And the video games that they call out are all 90s video games, like the Legend of Zelda Link to the Past, the Final Fantasy 2, 3-ish series, Sonic the Hedgehog, the first Super Mario for the Super Nintendo. Those are all, you know, early to mid-90s video games as well. Does that count for Dance Dance Revolution as well? Oh, okay, no, that, uh, right, that one's more... <laughs> yeah, but more the people. actual game they're playing on the screen is basically a modified Mortal Kombat yeah, yeah, very much so. Yeah, it's not right exactly, and that's also like that's when he's with his younger girlfriend, right? So it's the, these are the games that the kids play these days. Oh, I mean, they reference a lot of stuff. There's a very specific Soul Caliber fight in the in the um, in the movie, from, specifically from I think Soul Caliber Two, because she has the she has the little the Lulu weapon, right? Is it, not, is it Lulu? Is that her name? No, she, I'm mixing confusing her with the one from Final Fantasy. But the the whip with the blades on it is um is from Soul Caliber, and even oh, the, uh, the I- Ivy. Ivy is there. Ivy. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair enough, fair enough. Yeah, I confuse her with the other goth chick from the other video game. But yeah, I mean, it's all in there. It's definitely <laughs> in there. Well, I want to ask Mark really? this. Uh, the, the music that Scott Pilgrim's band played, to me, sounded pretty 90s, but I, I tend not to pay as much attention to that as you do. What did you think of it? Um, I wouldn't have placed it as, as 90s. I mean, I mean well, yeah, it, it, it was very 90s because it was all written by Beck. <laughs> really? Was it? <laughs> Yeah, yes, performed like Beck, by him. Yeah, Beck, com- Beck composed the entire Sex Bob-omb playlist. 
who is Canadian, right? Or no, uh, is he not uh, Canadian? Am I just making he? that up? I don't know. I think he's help me, Wikipedia. Help me. To, I'll be to, I'll, I'll be in my bunk, guys. To, to, to talk a little more. <laughs> to talk a little more about the soundtrack while Pete consults Wikipedia, uh, I, th- and this this is largely my taste, but I think it was interesting how the 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 music in the well, a the soundtrack was phenomenal. I I went home and acquired the soundtrack immediately after seeing the film because it was it just blew me away, and B uh, it w- it seemed to me at least based on my taste that the soundtrack got better as the movie progressed and got more towards its climax. I mean, the initial, the initial songs are good, but they're that sort of grungy, garage, hipster attitude. Like when, when Sex Ballon is playing their song Garbage Truck, they're standing on stage strumming slowly, and they don't really look like they care. And then it, it builds to the point where in their, you know, their confrontation with the Katianagi brothers, it's, it's the hardest rockin' song they've played so far. And I, you know, I, was, I was gripping the armrest, like, yeah, this rocks. They go. They go well, backwards. They Canadian. go back. Beck's father is Canadian, so they, Beck is from Los Angeles. So they I go backwards entirely. They go backwards in time from '90s rock to '80s rock. <laughs> <laughs> there, there is one Canadian band that I know of in the movie, which is the the band that is the band that stands in for Clash at the Demon Head, is actually Metric, which is kind yeah. of meta because Clash at the Demon Head was in the comic books is based on Metric. So oh, they, uh, they actually got them uh, to, to, to play it. That's cool. And that was instantly probably my favorite song in the entire soundtrack. And I thought it was impressive, too, because it's, it's one of those things that uh, there's this old movie review site that refers to things like this movie as an informed attribute where everybody talks about, like, oh, this guy's the greatest fighter you've ever seen. Oh, he's incredible. And then he actually shows up in fights, and it's not that impressive. So it, it's when the language of a movie tells us that this is supposed to be badass, but it's not. And so, and so you're sort of used to that thing. And yet I was shocked when the Clash at Demon Head finally showed up, and they were actually the hardest rockin' band we'd seen so far. I mean, they put on the biggest rock spectacle of any, of any group we've seen. So that's all. You know, I, this makes me wonder about the metaphor of hardness uh, for rock. You know, not just because... Um, I mean, uh, it, it's a it's a funny sort of catacresis, right? It's, it's a mixed metaphor because rock in rock and roll refers to like a sideways motion, right? Um, and and yet uh, the metaphor of hardness uh, has to do with rock, the you know geologic right thing, like a rock that you would throw at your head. And so there's uh, a metaphor metaphor sheer. Uh. There's a right, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a oh, it's a what? It's a uh, uh, it's a metaphor operating on a metonymy or something like that. I don't know. Milton would know. You could go a little dirtier than that because rock and roll originally meant something entirely different. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, sure. Absolutely. But it's, it it's crack rock. smoke crack while you listen to it. That's why all the preachers told you not to listen to it because you had to smoke crack when you listen to it. It's <laughs> <laughs> am I am I doing okay? Wikipedia hasn't steered me wrong yet. <laughs> Get all my information straight from the source. <laughs> Uh, Hey, Amanda, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the end of the books, because I just I understand from the pre-show that it departs that the film departs from uh, the book series at a a certain point. And how how is that? How does that play out? And what's what's uh, what's the deal with that? Well, I'd say the biggest thing is um, the biggest thing is that over the series of the books, 
the the movie makes it seem like the entire romance goes down in like 48 hours but in the books Ramona's and um, Scott's relationship is way more drawn out and they are actually living together she leaves him for many months and she comes back in the the sixth book and the 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 fight with Gideon is similar except there's no if i recall correctly knives has no part in it they they basically took the knives versus ramona fight from one of the earlier books and just sort of grafted it onto the last fight which yeah i think was the biggest misstep of the movie honestly because just Gideon versus Scott and at basically at the the end of the last book if i recall correctly ramona and Scott take Gideon on together. Ramona in the movie is just sort of sitting on the side for some reason. Yeah, yeah it, I don't really like what they did with Knives in, in the movies. I mean, Knives, is, they make her way too important in the story. I mean, she's, she's there, but she's, she's something that sort of drifts into the background. I mean, she's a present in the plot, but um, they make her too old-looking. You know, they make, they, she looks like a kind of girl that, that uh, Scott Pilgrim ought to be very attracted to. Right, and and she seems totally reasonable. Whereas in the books, even the way she's drawn and the way she's acted out, like it's very clear that she's a child, like and that her infatuation is something that is not good for her, right? And, and that yeah. you know that it, it, this is something that shouldn't be happening. Um, but well, but was, also that it's like the passions of the heart, right? And so it was yeah. a really odd big, addition big, too. Oh, sorry, go ahead. It was a really odd addition because um, the whole you know the last fight is all about self actualization and what is I forget what his power is but is it what is it self respect I think is yes. the sword he pulls out of his chest at the end and then he's helped by a teenage girl yeah it's like not good for your self respect in a fight yeah, yeah the whole if I re- yeah if I recall correctly the final fight in the book is Ramona gets the power of love sword now you have two people with one. Yeah, one of the biggest differences. Yeah, yeah. One of the biggest differences between the movie and the book, from from my perspective, is that in the book it's made very clear very early on that Scott Pilgrim is one of the biggest badasses in Canada. Yeah. Like in terms of fighting, (laughs) he's incompetent at everything else. Like he can't play the bass very well. He's terrible at relationships. He's kind of a doof. He's poor. Can't hold down a job. But the first fight he gets in, people are like, "Why is he messing with Scott Pilgrim? Like Scott Pilgrim is the best fighter in this province, and he will destroy him." Uh, and, and I think that that, of course, Hollywood has to say, oh, no, like, we have to make our hero this underdog who doesn't believe in himself, and he has to be urged on to find, his, his, find himself. And that's not what the books are about. Like, the books are not about, he's not, like, Scott Pilgrim isn't really a Michael Sarah character in the books. He's no, not, like, he's, yeah. he's not meek at all. No, God, no. He's incompetent, and he's kind of innocent and, and naive, but he's not meek. He, he just goes out there and, and jackhammers people. I guess what you're saying they're trying to say, Pete, is that it should have cast Sylvester Stallone for this, except he was busy making the Expendables instead. (laughs) (laughs) I think a young Ashton Kutcher would have been actually pretty good, because Scott's supposed to be kind of cute, too. Yeah. You could have done worse than than, uh, casting the the protagonist of the OC, whoever that guy was. (laughs) Um, Ben Ben McKenzie? Ben McKenzie, he would have been a better Scott Pilgrim because he has that sort of dumb look on his face, like he doesn't have an idea what's happening, but you get the sense that if he were to get into a fight, he just might be able to hurt you pretty badly. Because Yeah, you know, but they you know. took care of that in the OC, so it would have been redundant. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's, that's true. Yeah, God knows Hollywood doesn't like to repeat itself, especially in multi-million dollar successes. <laughs> yeah, and they even, snuck in, they even snuck in the line about Destiny. They snuck it in there. Some script doctor was like, this has to be about Destiny, like every freaking Hollywood movie. 
Like, when Wallace is like, it's your destiny to be with this girl. Like, what the F? Come on, guys. You're not even trying at this point. <laughs> My war on determinism continues. But, um, <laughs> but, I mean, I think that this, and this is, I mean, I talked about this a lot when they made the Dragon Ball movie, because they did the same thing, like, times a million. Hollywood is very uncomfortable with likable protagonists who are good at what they do and, and enjoy what they do, and especially ones who enjoy violence <laughs> and are appreciate violence. <laughs> Like, because they have to make it as if you don't want to fight, right? Because, because like, it's not acceptable or something, or everybody, every hero has to be on this very specific Joseph Campbell model, and if you deviate from it too much, then, then they're not interested. They feel like you're going to lose people. Like, Scott, Scott Pilgrim isn't enough of an everyman, so you have to make him, like, more. Or is it more that, like, I don't know, the script writing book that I read that I often cite, which is the Save the Cat, which um, I actually could look up the author if I went to go hunt it down, talks about how movies are trying to connect with people who are fundamentally insecure, which is why you should make your protagonist like them and, like, not good at things, <laughs> which is just awful and such a sad, pessimistic, and self-reinforcing prejudicial way of viewing people and, and communicating with them. Because it isn't about be a brave man and win the girl. Like, that's not what the books are about at all. The books are about past. And, and, and it, the whole thing, and the reason that the video game injury, imagery is there, and it's that the things that get stuck in our brains that, that both define us and define our experiences of the world, they're obstacles, but they're also powers, right? Like, we are creatures that come from the combination of the things that we've seen and the things that we've experienced. And, and, and I think that, I mean, other than that, it's a retelling of, of a very loose retelling of the Pilgrim's Progress story, where you have, like, an everyman who has to go up against, like, the sort of great boogeyman of his age, Right, which are like you know, not like Hollywood and um, you know, playground exes, and you know, the sort of self-important vegan. Like those could all be characters in. Uh, <laughs> hence, hence in the name Pilgrim, Scott Pilgrim, Pilgrim, right? Yeah, I was wondering exactly. when we were going to make yeah. that connection, right? Well, it's interesting. <laughs> I just want to ask: Has anyone actually read Pilgrim's Progress? Because I find it tremendously boring, and I've never been able to get through <laughs> uh, it. I'm pretty sure Matt has. Okay, it's it's interesting on that point because. The movie, and this is just a time issue, but they sort of marginalize Ramona's journey, which is, by the end, just as important. She has to to realize all the, her bad relationships don't yeah. make her undateable or unacceptable. Yeah. yeah well, which that's is funny, because that's what happens in Pilgrim's Progress, too. They go on the guy's journey first, and then the second half of it is the wife has to go on the same journey. And it's like they have to do it in a pair, and in the end, everything is resolved, and everybody gets to gets to be in heaven. But it, it, in, in Pete's oh. Hollywood model, it's very important that that the main character be a dude, right? I mean, I didn't make that up. I'm just <laughs> it's not my idea. Don't, yeah, I'm just I saying think, that that's the, that's the model. Yeah, they have to make him a dude think, because you know women will watch men, and and because they've been conditioned to think the men should be authority figures, and men won't watch women and won't watch women heroes because it's. They don't care, and they, they aren't interested in women authority figures. I, I think the I think the female I think the female version of Pilgrim's Progress would be called Eat, Pray, Love, which was also <laughs> in the theaters this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah. So I guess we had all four quadrants represented, except that Ramona kind of got the short shrift. Like you have the older men, the young, the older women, the younger men, and then like Ramona. Oh, okay. <laughs> that quadrant gets left out. Unless there was like yeah, a unless, unless, yeah, I was just, I was just about to say, <laughs> Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants Three. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. Uh, <laughs> that's I'll, I'll say never, never having, never having read the books, I, I liked the inclusion of knives in the final confrontation because I had nothing else to compare her against, so I, I had no other conception of her as, as less, less mature or less ideal, and I liked that she showed up to sort of force Scott to confront his 
asshole behavior in the earlier part of the movie. Yeah, I think that's yeah, I mean, important. That was good, but at the same time, the, the sort of final scene where it looks like he's chosen her and then she tells him to chase Ramona just sort of fell flat and didn't, like, sort of wasn't emotionally true to what had been going on before. Like, yeah, it was at kind no of, point did Nive suggest that she was willing to give up Scott Pilgrim. It was kind of a soup of, uh, you know what I mean? It was a kind of soup as to sort of what was um, what was going on. Plus, the whole trope of Asian ex machina is uh, tired at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about it, guys. Oh, I'm Asian and I come from the machine and I would know. <laughs> I guess, I guess... So this, I guess, is this the time where we need to talk about uh, the portrayal of Asian characters in, in pop culture? I guess this is that time. Yeah, let's, let's talk about it. Let's All talk right. About it. Well, let me get my soapbox out here and talk about <laughs> portrayals. Of Sarah wow, Sarah. that soap is so affordable, and it's made by such wonderful, glorious factories in all southern China. What, what's kind of sad is the books actually have um, a really an uh, Asian characters that run right against stereotype, and that is really like marginalized in the movie again for time but the japanese twins are kind of against certain kind of american stereotypes of japanese men they're like super sexy super strong like everything that they're every uh, not they're against every negative stereotype that you run across yeah they're not even drawn like stereotypical japanese men um in the comics their design is much different they're like stony they're almost like the moai statues in the way that they're chiseled. Hmm. So, yeah. I guess, so, okay, so Knives Child, clearly, um, there are parts of her character which are very sort of stereotypical young Asian female, right? Naive, um, you know, doesn't, not very clued into popular music, um, these sorts of things. Um, and I think this is the part where everybody's kind of expecting me to be like, this is so terrible, and why can't there be better Asian characters in movies? I didn't really come away with that feeling, though, because I felt that Knives Child was much more defined by her youth and, and that naivete, which really weren't, I didn't feel like were very intrinsically linked to her ethnicity. Um, it seems like other no. people might be, might be disagreeing with this, though. I agree with Mark in saying that uh, she wasn't so much playing the Asian stereotypes as she was playing just a very young girl in that she was crazed and she was obsessed. And if I had gone to a band practice when I was uh, 17... 16, 15, I would have just freaked out and been obsessed, which is kind of what I did anyway when I was a teenager. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much with you, Natalie. The one thing that kind of keeps me from saying fully on that this is a character that just happens to be Asian is the fact that her Asianness is, of course, used as a way to sort of show how Scott is being, I don't know what quite the word is, pathetic. They say like, oh, that's how, that's so lame. He's, you know, he's, he's got this his rebound girl is this very young Chinese girl, as they put it, which as an aside, I, I've always got uncomfortable when they just sort of just label someone as ethnically as just saying that Chinese girl. But um, that's another thing. That's another right. sort of podcast. No, and it was, aren't, there, aren't there a billion people who could be accurately described that way, Mark? Yes, that is very true. <laughs> However, in the uh, Western Hemisphere and non uh, country that's other than China, um, when you say to that person, is that person is Chinese, I guess it's mostly a personal thing um, growing up where they're like, oh, oh, that Chinese guy, and they'll be referring to me, which, as all of our podcast listeners should know, I'm not Chinese ethnically. I'm Korean American. If I were Chinese, that would be anything wrong with that. But it's this sort of leap to, it's a convenient uh, leap for other vacation. 
for other people. So, though I'd say culturally, you're Southern, Mark, right? <laughs> <laughs> Southern Korean and, and and South Korean and Southern American. I Southern in it, all aspects of the word. It's a it's a tweak that they should have thought of when they moved it from the books because in the books she's like the child of Chinese immigrants. Yeah. Mm. I mean, yeah, like the, I, her Chineseness. Yeah, go ahead. I, I mean, I don't know if that modifies that in any way, but it it. it it's a line from the book. Maybe the Canadian what context thought, is different as well. What I thought was probably the most obviously insensitive parts of of her being referred to as as being Asian or having that being pointed out that it wasn't anything she was doing. I thought it was just everyone else was talking about it, which was uncomfortable perhaps yeah because what what, you know what was she doing she was you know going to the coffee place or (laughs) shopping for clothes or you know going to going to the shows i mean she wasn't doing anything that was uh or you know what i mean that specifically marked her as ethnic but this you know i mean this is i think it takes place in a a cosmopolitan city even though it's it's depicted more like a a small town um you know toronto's a the most yeah. the most we see of her private life is when she's freaking out over seeing Scott and Ramona together, and she's uh, complaining to uh, a peer of hers who's who's also Asian, incidentally, and she's just going on in this very stereotypical teenage young girl rant that that her friend occasionally comments on. And what struck me is you know how easily you could have slotted you know two female teenagers of any ethnicity into that role, and it wouldn't have played any differently. It's Except- not as if her. Except for one line where Knives refers to Ramona as that, I think, fat-ass white chick. True, but I mean, I, I guess uh, two, two skinny African, well, African-Canadian, uh, African-American uh, girls could have, could have had that conversation just as easily. Well, two white girls couldn't have had that conversation, though. Well, well, I mean, it, true, yeah. Right. They would have just looked fat, said fat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in the books, the main characteristic of, of uh, Knives' Chinese-ness is that her family doesn't want her, wouldn't want her to be dating anybody, and certainly would not want her family to be dating, her family would not want her to be dating Scott. And there's like an arc where her father gets involved, and he is like, has this sword and all this other, she's this symbol of, uh, of this like, uh, symbol of sort of Asian, vengeful, fatherly masculinity. Um, and then there's like a reconciliation where he comes to respect uh, Scott. But there's this juxtaposition in the book between Asian-ness and ninja-ness, <laughs> which is interestingly enough not concentrated in the Asian characters. So there's like a number of different Asian characters in the in the books, and there's a number of different characters who are referred to as ninjas. And there's very little overlap between those two people, which I think it shows you sort of where in the culture this notion of ninjaness has migrated to. That it, that we actually now like think about back in the eighties when all the ninja video games that were being made it sunk into the consciousness and the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and all that stuff. Nowadays, during the past you know, 20 years, there's been a massive influx of Asian immigration. So you are much, much more likely in America now to know Asian people and to know the children of Asian people who will be more heavily Americanized and will be able to speak better English, so you'll be able to communicate with them more. So you're taking this thing that's sort of handed down from a previous generation, this older notion of this foreign people that has been, you know, absorbed and transmuted into this other thing, this ninja-ness, and then you're meeting the people who are actually Chinese, and it's totally different. Right, and it's like, oh, they just have a really tight family, and like, just she probably can't. The the main point of it is, she can't have a real relationship with Scott for a whole bunch of reasons that are obvious to everybody, and he needs to move on. And that's just where it starts. It's like when Karen, at the beginning of the Fred and Chronicles, is like taking care of the pig, 
right? And like, yeah, the pig has magical powers and everything, but he can't spend the whole book taking care of the pig. Like, they make him a pig, an assistant pig keeper, because to force him to go out there and do stuff. Because like, what you're doing now is just wrong. You know, you should not be sitting on this farm. You're the hero of this book. Uh, and it's the same thing here. It's like he's dating a, a Chinese teenager whose parents will never let her date him, right? Who, who like, it is also there's this idea is like as the white guy and he's dating the Asian girl, like he's, he's trying to adopt some sort of like stereotype in himself that everybody feels is creepy and wrong. And it's just like it's supposed to be the wrong thing for him to do. And, and, I, and I think that there's a lot of interesting things that are being said there, but like the movie drops a lot of them. Um, and, and, I mean, I guess it's tough because you have issues of canonicity where it doesn't really matter whether the movie drops them or not. Like, the movie exists in itself. Does it exist in dialogue with the books? Should we expect people to read the books if they read the movie? Like, that's always a big question, and it's always an, it's a bit of an appeal to authority to look to the books for answers to these things. But it's definitely, like, not something that's, that's sort of bandied about in the property as a whole casually. Like, they go into a lot of depth uh, in the books about, like, the Chineseness uh, and all that stuff. So we haven't really talked about uh, we've we've kind of glanced at it in a couple of of ways, but we haven't really talked about the visual style of the movie uh, head on, which is you know one of the more remarkable things about it. You know, if you're just kind of uh, encountering it without knowing anything about it, is there anything to be said about the visual style of the movie other than what what Pete said that the kind of the references to video games are about the. Um, you know, are about the the kind of what the psychological determinism of being, or or no, I I shouldn't say that about um uh being uh, sort of being made up of bits and pieces of things that you've encountered over time. I mean, I would add to that that the way that the scenes are spliced together and the way that the the different transitions happen is also related to an, an idea of experience that's fragmented and reassembled. Right, like the way, especially near the beginning of the movie, where he opens the, you know, he opens the bathroom door and walks out into the lockers. Right, doesn't he do that or something like that? I forget which yeah. door he's opening. And like they pass from scene to scene, like very quickly. Um, now, this is of course also just Shaun of the Dead stuff, right? Because isn't it the same uh, same director? Or am I? Am I right. Yes, that's yeah, correct. Yeah. yeah, so it's so it's very Shaun of the Dead. Obviously, the scene they make fun of it when he's tying his shoes in that wonderful moment. But like <laughs> the particles of the video games that get brought into the visual style are similar to the way that the parts of the scenes fit together into the experience. And I think that that's just sort of like a cubist way of looking at of uh, looking at memory and experience. Sure, the thing right? that... is that like these things do fit together, and we narrativize them by taking out parts. Uh, right. Uh, yeah, that we narrativize them by taking out parts, I think, is exactly it. I'll, I'll say that for, I mean, just for the kind of the grammar of film language, things like, there are things like match cuts or cuts on action, uh, where you're cutting from one character, where you would you would expect to, to be cutting to the same character from a different angle, like when someone turns their head or something like that. Uh, that's often a point where, you know, an editor will cut the movie because it, it uh, helps create the illusion of seamlessness, but you're cutting from um, uh, you're cutting from one actor to another or one time frame for another so this is something this is something like uh uh, we talked about with inception where it's sort of it problematizes the relationship of shot to shot and makes you sort of makes you uncertain about uh, where you are uh has kind of a disorienting and alienating effect right yeah yeah definitely crickets no i mean i also also add like well go ahead uh, just about the the sort of the way that he uses the video games. Um, if you look at it all, sort of as as being a, a psychological thing, where you know he like grabs the life uh, and says, you know, in sort of an on the nose moment, says like, "What are you doing? I'm getting a life." And you know he grabs the little Scott Pilgrim head above him. Um, we were talking earlier. About, <laughs> uh, 
Yeah. <laughs> well, we're talking earlier about how all these are like our cultural touchstones. And I think it's interesting because like in the past, a cultural touchstone would be something like, you know, the Odyssey or the Iliad, which were cultural touchstones for thousands of years. And yet, as Matt learned in the theater, this is one that's already gone to some extent. I mean, it was this one little slice of a generation. Um, in terms of sort of longevity, I feel like this movie has no shelf life at all, perhaps less than any other film I've ever seen. It's in the tradition of Finnegan's Wake, I think, where it tries to like take a lot of the fragmented memories of a particular cultural and historical moment and, and elucidate a variety of different sorts of meanings out of combining them and mixing them and matching them and, and seeking their resonances. But yeah, like to read Finnegan's Wake, you have to do a great deal of research and glossing. Um, and to do this, to really understand it, if you were coming from a different era, you'd probably have to do a fair amount of research and glossing and, and things like that. Yeah, I mean, this is a... a- Twenty-one, twelve research uh, PhD thesis waiting to happen. <laughs> Isn't it really a problem with postmodernism in general? Which I really would put this movie kind of in that category. What do you mean? It just has no shelf life because everything about it is self-referential, like cult, like immediate cultural references. That that's. It, it's never going to make sense except to the people directly experiencing the culture that it was made in. Well, that's I, I, th- I think you're right. That's also been true, though, of a lot of uh, of a lot of works of art. Uh, the one that leaps to mind is Dante's Inferno, right? Where um, yes, there are some mythological characters and and uh, things like this, but a, lo- a lot of the people in that are political figures who were current at the time, and a lot of the other people suffering in hell are like Dante's rivals as writers, people you would not have heard of because they. they they died without getting famous. Um, you know, uh, right. So that uh, this is why, you know, this is how literary studies, you know, make sense claims for legitimacy, right? Because you have to spend a lot of time unpacking each of these, uh, um, each of these references, but the, the, the time frame, it's, it's almost so it, the time frame has gotten way foreshortened. Also, when you look like when we read Dante's Inferno now, those are the parts we skip. You 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 skip parts of Dante's Inferno, Josh. I'm shocked. Yeah, we were in the same class. You skipped. <laughs> I agree that the shelf life is very short, but I still think that this movie will be watchable to the people who saw it in the theaters in 30, 40 years, and it will be the same kind of of uh, nostalgia that you get from it now, but it will still only be for just a very, very tiny group of people. Aging. Yeah, no, when, when our generation is in the retirement home, this is going to make us very, very happy. Right. But as soon as we're gone, like, that's it. That's the end. Like, we're going to, you know, we'll think we're talking to each other instead of to our caretakers, but... I guess the the lesson of their box office kind of failure is... Never target anything to Generation X. <laughs> I guess a, a small or rather generation. Or rather, it's time to stop targeting things at Generation X. Like our our time has passed. I, well, we don't get that much, you know. I remember the glory days of Reality Bites, right? Where it was, where it seemed like uh, every week there was a movie about disaffected slackers, uh, you know, kind of clawing their way through through life one miserable day at a time. And and now, you know, now everyone is so 
happy. You know, now everyone is so. Uh, <laughs> we have know? money now. <laughs> oh, I meant I meant the teenagers. I meant the young people. Now they're all so peppy. Now they listen to the Demi Lovatos and the the uh, you know what I mean and the 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 they Miley. Think their boyfriends are vampires for Christ's sake. <laughs> 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 they wish their boyfriends were vampires. It's yeah. even worse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, I wish my boyfriend was either a vampire or that he was capable of stepping up to the streets in 3D. <laughs> um, and their crazy rainbow parties. Um, <sighs> and, their cra- and their crazy rainbow parties. All right, that's been about an hour of podcast. We should probably... Um... We should probably wrap it up there. Uh, thanks to the panel, and thanks for Amanda for, for coming on and joining us for this. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, you're welcome. Um, if you want to join the conversation about anything having to do with Scott Pilgrim or the other pop culture that we've neglected this week on this podcast, you can email us at podcast at overthinkingit.com or call the voicemail at 203-285-6401. That's 203-285-6401. I, if you are one of the kids these days, I, uh, I've discovered recently that we also can accept text messages at that, at that voicemail and they'll come to, uh, they'll come to us as, as emails. So you can text us at 203-285-6401. Until next Just, week. Uh, don't tell us how old we are when you text us. That'll hurt. <laughs> we, well, we know Pete's 30. Happy birthday, Pete. <laughs> um, Call me on my rotary phone, Pennsylvania six five hundred. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can call Pete on his rotary phone at Pennsylvania six five hundred. It, it would have to be five thousand, I think, right? Pennsylvania six five thousand, or you I don't can help that high. I'm old tiny. <laughs> I only go to hundred. But if your phone does not go round and round and round and instead is a flat panel of cold, feelingless glass uh, into which you type on a virtual keyboard, uh, you should type www.overthinkingit.com, which is the website where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. Continue, save, load new. Y'all look just like that little boy, Scott Pilgrim. You remember him?